I wanted the magazine to be about the life and the well-being of the young woman. It wasn't around how to kiss or quizzes, silly quizzes, or how to dress to attract boys. I mean, I didn't want any of that. I didn't want it to be about how you are in relation to men, how you attract them, how you make them happy, how you please them. So dated. But that is still what teen magazines were largely doing at that point. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Amy Astley, the editor-in-chief of Architectural Digest, one of the premier design magazines in the publishing world. Before joining AD in 2016, she was the founding editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, a position she was handpicked for after she spent a decade working for Anna Wintour, the legendary Vogue editor, whose aggressive, ambitious style was the basis for Meryl Streep's character in The Devil Wears Prada. But as Amy Astley will tell you, working for the real Anna Wintour isn't like the movies. Their caricatures, their stereotypes. Of course, Anna's not only, you know, the hardcore businesswoman, but she is a person who works all the time. You see that she's in it with you, working really, really hard. We all know of bosses who, like, don't really come to work. And it's, it's, it's not positive. Whether at Vogue, Teen Vogue, or Architectural Digest, Astley has explored the world of style and culture. And sometimes that makes politics an unavoidable topic, even when she's not seeking it out. I had Ricky Martin on the cover with his husband and his two kids. I didn't really give it two thoughts because to me they're just a fabulous couple, beautiful family, great house. I had a lot of letters thanking me for just presenting them as a gay couple without putting any politics around it or any pointing it out in any way. And it didn't really occur to me that we would single them out in any way. To me, they were family. And now, here's my conversation with Amy Astley. We are here on the 26th floor of One World Trade Center in Manhattan. Beautiful views. Uh, You can't beat that. Uh, I'm curious... Do you remember the first time you came to New York? Absolutely. I was 11 years old the first time I came to New York. I grew up in Michigan. I was raised there. And I came here. It was the late 70s. Um, My father's a professor of art. And he was on his sabbatical. And he's an artist. And so we, we moved to New York City for a year. I went to public school. So did my two brothers. That had to be different. It was. I mean, I went to public school in Michigan, but this was a oh, this was an urban. It was completely different. Right. Completely different. <laughs> I lived in a loft in Tribeca, but it wasn't called Tribeca then. It was a, a working neighborhood with um, factories and storage and trucks. Um, they were warehouses, mm-hmm. really. It wasn't like the chic Tribeca of today. <laughs> it is now, <laughs> yeah. right? And I, you know, ironically, live on the same block that I lived on back then. But yeah, that was my that was my the first time I came to New York and I actually fell in love with it instantly. I recall being in Grand Central Station and and so shocked that I was almost going to faint from the noise and the trains and the crush of people. I remember that vividly and once I I got over that and I adjusted, I was an addict. Well, you are now editor-in-chief of Architectural Digest. Can you walk us through what a typical day looks like for you. It's what's one of the things that people are most fascinated to me because I get up at 3.30 in the morning and the day kind of starts from there. 
I wish I could say I get up at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> no, um, you don't. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I actually don't wish I could say that. I don't do that. Well, a typical day for me is getting my high school daughter off to school. School starts at 8. So we're up early in the house. You know, we're always up by 6 a.m. It's not 3.30. That's early. Um, and I will admit that like a lot of people, I reach my for my phone first thing. I'm definitely addicted to all forms of news. I read a ton of news on the phone, but I also read the paper versions of the New York Times and the New York Post, mm. and I update on Instagram and Twitter and um, simultaneously try to get the child out the door to school, you know. I often have breakfast, uh, work breakfast at 8.30. That's when I start. So if I do an, a breakfast at 8.30, I'm in the office by about 10. I don't like to go out for lunch. I just think it's a time killer. And it's important. I think it's very important not to become totally chained to your desk. And it's hard in this day and age of email because I think we all feel overwhelmed by our email and you can literally spend your entire day sort of passively responding to other people's stuff. Mm -hmm. So the typical day starts early, lots of news, child off to school, oftentimes a breakfast in the office uh, by 10 if there's a breakfast, a little earlier if there isn't one. My whole day here is spent in lots of meetings. Right. Like email, I wish there weren't so many, but there it is. I try to make sure that I keep time open in the day to consult. There's always not really, you know, it's not a crisis or an emergency, but people have their own stuff coming up that they need to run by me and that they need me to approve. So I have open door policy. I see everybody who needs to be seen. I try to see them all the same day. If it's urgent, quickly. I think it just keeps the camaraderie high and they feel that I'm involved in what they're doing and that I'm not like the roadblock boss who's mm -hmm. like not available and doesn't respond. Right. I respond to email all day and that starts early in the morning too and all night, you know, it's until I until I pass out, which <laughs> I pass out very early, but, you know, always responding to people so that they feel that I'm attentive and so I know what's going on, you know, and it's it's a big job. I've been an editor-in-chief a long time, but now you also have social media and the website and growing digital businesses, which we're doing so much of that at AD, in addition to a print product, which right. is still a big print product. And that used to be that used to be just the job. Talk about this. I mean, as you just mentioned, this, of course, is not your first job in the magazine world. No. You've, you've been at County Nast since you graduated from college. Yes. How did you get your foot in the door? At Condé Nast? Yeah. Um, you know, I really love reading and writing. I'm a word person and a visual person. I grew up my whole life around artists. I grew up in galleries and museums. And I, I think it just formed my eye young. And to me, being a magazine editor is being a storyteller. It's words and pictures. And that just felt like a really natural fit for me, growing up in a very visual, creative environment with my family. And I was a bookworm as a child. Mm. I was that kid who took out six books a week from the public library and then returned them the next weekend and read more. So I knew that I wasn't like the next great American novelist, <laughs> you know? And I I just had always sort of disappeared into the world of magazines and loved them. And it, it felt like the right place for me to go. I basically sort of came to Condé Nast cold. I interviewed at other companies. I was lucky that Condé was responsive. And my first job was at House and Garden Magazine, and it was a great fit for me. HG, it was mm -hmm. called. I was the editor-in-chief's assistant. I was the second assistant. <laughs> and, you know, it was a wonderful place to start. It was a world of architecture, gardens, tabletop, decorating. It was a very um, genteel and civilized environment, and I adored it. And I only really left because the magazine was closed in 93. Right. Mm -hmm. I think it was 1993, uh, maybe halfway into the year. When Mr. Newhouse bought, ironically enough, AD, Architectural right. Digest, right. which was um, founded and, and based at that time in Los Angeles. 
Mr. Newhouse always wanted AD. It was a great business. Once he bought it, um, he he closed House and Garden. Mm. And I was I was actually in the room when he announced that he had bought AD and that he was closing House and Garden. So everything I'm telling you is not hearsay. I heard it with my <laughs> own ears. And I was young. Yeah. You know, I was probably like 25. And Wasn't so, that scary? Because, I mean, you, know, you go from having yes, a job to going, yes, what's going to happen next? Yes, I had no job. And, you know, it was, it was a good learning experience because I realized... If, HG felt like a family environment. It was a very close-knit group of, of people who treated each other very well. So it was a great place to learn how positive a work environment mm-hmm. could be. But I also learned, you know, it's a business. And it's not actually your family. <laughs> um, and if there's a better business out there, you know, and AD was commercially a better business, I learned young that that could happen to you. Every negative experience, you have to try to learn from it and grow from it. And I realized, hey, business is business, and this is a job. And, you know, just to sort of be smart about um, about your own personal situation and not get too comfy. You know, it's not like it's your mom and dad. Right, no. Who will always look out <laughs> for you, you know? Did you did you ever take a pause and think, whoa, like life can change very quickly? Is the magazine industry where I want to be, or did you always just still felt like this was the place for you? You know, it was the mid nineties. Uh, magazines were absolutely vibrant. Um, I interviewed at a few things, including Martha Stewart. But you know, a, a friend of mine, a great editor from HG, recommended me to Anna Wintour. Mm. At Vogue, because she said, "Is there anyone young who I might like um, at House and Garden?" Everybody was out of their job, and my friend Charles Gandy said to her, "I think you'd like Amy. She works with Wendy Goodman, and Wendy was part of the fashion community, and in addition to the design community." Um, and I went and met with Anna that same day that House and Garden closed. Oh, the like same whiplash. day, yeah. And I learned also that's how she operates very fast. Because I can remember saying to HR, how about tomorrow? You know, thinking I'll get my mind together. I'll get my outfit together. And they said, no, she's ready today. And so I, uh, it was the, sa- the same day the magazine closed. I was called in to see her. So, and, and I did get that job. And I thought I'd stay at, at Vogue for maybe a year or something. Um, and I ended up staying almost 10 years at Vogue. Well, I think a lot of our listeners, when they hear the name Anna Wintour, think of a caricature, Meryl Streep, mm-hmm. the devil, devil Wears Prada. But right. I'm sure working for her as long as you did. Mm -hmm. Your experience with her is a a bit different than that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just said it. They're caricatures. They're stereotypes. And, you know, that always happens to, I think, fascinating people and successful people, you know, and and people in general. You realize people kind of want to put people in a box. Right. And um, my takeaway there would be just don't let don't let anyone put baby in a corner. (laughs) You know, try not to let people box you in and say you're only this, you're only that. Of course, Anna's not only you know, the hardcore businesswoman, but she is a person who works all the time. And that's really what I saw. And I have tried to bring that to all my jobs. My team knows I'm always at my desk. If I'm not at my desk, they all know where I am. I'm not hiding it. You know, they know I'm in, in Europe on a business trip or I'm on a sales trip. If I'm on vacation, they know I'm on vacation. And I, it was something I actually learned watching Anna all those years. You see that she's in it with you working really, really hard. We all know of bosses who like don't really come to work, and it's 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 not positive, you know. Um, not to veer into politics too much, but it's it's sexist to attack a woman um, for her success, and I would never want to be part of that. And I think all of us who worked with Anna then and now, you try to um, you try to refuse that and say this is a business person, you know, successfully running a business. It's not easy. <laughs> 
And some of those things that were heaped upon her, you don't see it heaped upon men as much. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, a little bit. As I said, people do try to put people in a box. They're right. this or they're that. But, you know, to me, she's somebody deserving of utter respect. Well, talk about that. She asked you to join Vogue in its new beauty section. Yes. Very different job. You rose very yes. quickly. Yes. Uh, what made you decide to say yes? Right. And how was that to be in such a high profile kind of powerful position at such a young age? Yeah. I mean, the beauty section wasn't new. Beauty was a, was a key part of any, you know, fashion magazine, the huge advertising industry. Um, she asked me to come in at an associate level. So I was sort of a like mid-junior editor. It was the job that she had open. And the day that I went and interviewed with her, that fateful day that HG was closed, she actually gave me a copy test. I remember it very well because I wrote that they, it was for a real story they were doing in the magazine. It was based on these supermodels who had very short hair at the time, um, Amber Valletta, Shalom mm-hmm. Harlow. It was in the mid-90s. They had like a Mia Farrow little pixie cut. Mm-hmm. And I had one too. So she handed me the pictures and she said, could you write some text about this haircut, the new haircut? Um, I wrote the piece. They actually published it in the magazine. Oh, wow. So it was my copy test, but they they called me a day later and said, or two days later and said, you got the job and we're going to publish the story. So to me, to be honest, I see my, I saw myself then and I see myself now as a style journalist mm. and I have a wide range. You know, when she first interviewed me and, and, and I, I, it wasn't her, it was someone else on the team who said, well, what qualifies you to write about beauty? And I said what I just said to you. Mm-hmm. I'm a style person. I look at how things look and how they make you feel and what are the values beyond the things that we're looking at, whether it's a shoe or it's a lipstick. Mm-hmm. You know, why are these things interesting culturally? Um, for some people, they're not. But for me, everything about how things look is interesting. I can write about flowers, <laughs> and I have. Um, so I think that she appreciated that I brought that sensibility of, of, of the bigger picture of style to, to beauty and mm-hmm. wasn't just sort of obsessed about, I don't know, wrinkles or, right. or lipstick per se. And Vogue for me was a very enriching and large place. It mm-hmm. wasn't like a small little like beauty thing. I kept doing more and more. Eventually mm-hmm. I took on a section called index in the back of the magazine that was a fashion section. And I did, um, special issues, special onsorts we did. You know, it was the 90s. Business was fabulous. <laughs> and eventually Anna asked me to to do test issues for Teen Vogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for two years while I, I did two issues per year, sort of a spring-fall test issues mm-hmm. while I was still at Vogue. And you were handpicked to basically be the founding editor of yes. Teen Vogue. Yes. Teen Vogue launched in, the first issue came out in 03. I was given the job in June of 02. And I remember that very well because my daughter was born days later, um, my youngest child. You know, I was hugely pregnant when when Mr. Newhouse gave me the job. It was a heyday of teen magazines. There mm-hmm. was Seventeen. There was Jane, which wasn't exactly teen. There was Teen People, uh, YM. Mm-hmm. So it was a good time. It was the boy band time. It was Christina Aguilera. It was the Backstreet Boys. But you differentiated yourself from a lot of the other, yeah. you know, young women's uh, magazines of the time. Yes. Explain what your thinking was behind that. Well, my thinking was uh, was feminist. To be mm-hmm. honest, I wanted the magazine to be about the life and the well being of the young woman. You know, and it very much came out of my own my own feelings for myself. As an, I, I was an ambitious young person, and I'm still an ambitious woman. And I've raised two teenagers. Um, granted, when I started the magazine, they were little girls. <laughs> 
but I knew how I wanted them to, to be raised. And it wasn't around how to kiss or quizzes, silly quizzes, or how to dress to attract boys. I mean, I didn't want any of that. I didn't want it to be about how you are in relation to men, how you attract them, how you make them happy, how you please them. So dated. But that is still what teen magazines were largely doing at that point. So I came at it with a feminist perspective. Feminism was not a popular word then like it is now, but that's absolutely what we did. And the young women really responded to it. It was all about their health and well-being. Yes, their style. I think that's part of of being a happy person that be out in the world, how you present. Um, and I think it's healthy to have some concern about how people see see that. So of course, fashion and beauty were part of it, but so was skincare mm-hmm. and so was care for your body, to be honest. And again, never stories about dieting or being skinny, only about being an athlete, being healthy, being body positive, um, all things that really, it was it was new for the time. It was very new. And young people really responded. I still interact a lot with young women today um, who are in their mid to late 20s or maybe even 30 who grew up with Teen Vogue mm. and tell me how meaningful it was to them. And it always makes me just, it's gratifying. It's really gratifying. Well, there's obviously a lot of talk about beauty standards right now, yes. beauty acceptance, yes. uh, the images of women in fashion and beauty magazines yes. and how they affect women and girls. Yes. Looking back, giving hindsight, right? Now that yeah. you're in a very different role. How did you think through those issues? Did you miss the mark sometimes? Do yeah. you think maybe as a society we're in a different place right yeah, now than it's we a really were good in the question. 90s? It's a really good you know, question. Early 2000s? Yeah, I have a I have a quite a simple answer for you. I really wanted the magazine and the staff to feel diverse. And I worked very hard from from the beginning to make sure that the images in the magazine were racially, ethnically diverse. And we and we really accelerated that. But that was always really critical to me, and I'm proud of what we did and all the, I think, groundbreaking covers that we produced, um, showing women of color, to be yeah. honest, um, which wasn't happening enough in the industry at that time. And I think Team Vogue was really a leader. The thing that I wish we had made more progress on was more sizes, mm-hmm. to be honest. And my team has heard me say that many times. I think that our work wasn't complete. But... The generation of people who I left Teen Vogue to, who I hired and trained and developed, I think that they were able to deepen and continue that work. Mm -hmm. Because times changed, people changed, the audience changed, advertisers changed, the kids changed. It's so positive to see how Teen Vogue was able to adapt and change Mm -hmm. with the times. I think the DNA was all there, that we're we're woman positive, we're girl-friendly, we're girl-centric. We're not about men and we we're not about being exclusionary. You know, I'm really proud of a lot of the stories that I was able to produce um, over that the course of the 13 years. Um, I think that they moved the fashion industry forward. I want to skip ahead to uh, your current job at AD. Yeah. You uh, took this over in 2016. Yes. Uh, you started Teen Vogue. I mean, you were the, the, the DNA was innate in terms of yes. you know who you are, what you wanted to create. Yes. Architectural Digest, obviously, long history. Yeah, it's almost 100 years old. <laughs> uh, how did you take leading this publication maybe differently? Or to, you know, how did you jump into this? For me, having the opportunity almost three years ago now, it'll be three years at the end of May, was like karma to come back to the shelter category that I had started my career in. And even to be on the brand that I had lost my job or that the magazine had closed because of, it was the perfect moment for me to transition away from Teen Vogue after 13 years for myself where I am in my life. 
It felt completely organic and it just felt like absolutely the right time for me. Yes, it's a hundred years old, but it, it needed to be freshened up. You know, it did. So we needed to build a digital business, which is what we've done. Huge strides there because there really wasn't a, a lot happening digitally for AD. And it just needed to come into, at that time, into 2016 and now into 2019. So yeah, it's an old legacy mm. brand, but it had to feel relevant and fresh. I and, and I wanted it to feel buzzy and culturally relevant and have people talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started, people would say things to me like, Oh, it's sort of for old people, or it's just for old rich people. Are you are you sure? You know, and I thought this isn't okay. It needs to feel fresh and relevant. So I've tried to dig into that while keeping it. It is aspirational. It is the best in design, mm-hmm. and there are ways that you can make it feel open, still aspirational, still showing really great houses, but not have people feel like oh, it's elderly. Being a change agent can be difficult, though, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, from my own experience, I took over a franchise that was 10 years old, okay. writing playbook every morning and, you know, changing, updating the feel, looking at the audience, all of those yeah. things, right, need to happen. Yes. But can also, there's a lot of push-pulls in Absolutely. an organization when that happens. What's your advice now, two years later, with, you know, kind of our, our listeners, if they're in their own careers mm-hmm. and having to be a change agent? How can you navigate that and not maybe come up against some of the harder things? You know, there always will be some resistance. If you believe in your mission, you have to go forth and do it. You absolutely have to. And you can never make everyone happy. You never can. Not in in your organization and not the consumer or the customer for your product. You know, not everyone will be happy. It's true. People resist change. But it there is nothing in the world but change. Babies grow older, you know. (laughs) Right. If you can't embrace change, I think you will get left behind. And that would be my message to people struggling with their change agent and people are resisting them. Well, you should listen. What is the resistance? Is some of it valid? Is there something to be taken from some of it? You know, at AD, what we've tried to do is bring in new young people. We had Kylie Jenner on our last cover, but this cover, we have Frank Gehry. So if you really can't stand the one thing, well, maybe you can get behind the other. So we we do both. Mm. You know, we have a, a range from sort of pop culture and things that feel very fresh and very current and very new and topical and newsy and shareable digitally to things that are luxuriously almost old world, mm-hmm. you know, castles in Europe. And I think that's part of being a change agent, too, is figuring out, well, how much can you push the change in your organization? Where are people comfortable going? Um, and maybe take them to that outer outer edge. Right now, politics is such part of the overall discourse that everybody is having. You mentioned it a little bit earlier um, mm-hmm. with sexism. Mm-hmm. But I wonder how you at AD either choose to not be a part of that conversation or are there times when you feel like this is just the thing that everybody's talking about or the people that you're interviewing are very political? Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've you've thought a lot about? So we try not to go too deeply into politics, but I can say, you know, look, there are moments I had Ricky Martin on the cover with his husband and his two kids and it was a beautiful cover in their house in LA. They were barefoot, casual. Um, I didn't really give it two thoughts because to me, they're just a fabulous couple, beautiful family, great house. I had a lot of letters thanking me for just presenting them as a gay couple without putting any politics around it or any pointing it out in any way. And it didn't really occur to me that we would single them out in any way. Mm -hmm. To me, they were family. That's political. You know, that's a political statement that AD wants to be inclusive and is inclusive. 
Well, talking about that, one, one thing that has been important to you at AD is branching out to do more socially conscious work. Yes. Uh, tell me a little bit about the work you've done in Haiti. Yes. I call it design making a difference. Um, we've dipped our toe into it in different ways, uh, smaller ways uh, here domestically. But now the project in Haiti, it's a big project with um, a San Francisco-based charity called New Story. It's a Y Combinator charity, and they build inexpensive housing all over the developing world, inexpensively. $6,500 builds a house in Haiti. Um, so we set about trying to create an AD village, and we are breaking ground now in Haiti. We have a beautiful piece of waterfront land. There will be 100 houses there. The design community rallied to help us raise this money. ADs raised a lot of money in Condé Nast. And um, they're houses for people who've been living in tents since the earthquake in 2010. Hmm. Haiti obviously has a lot of corruption. I'm not saying anything politically um, controversial there. And it's shocking that now, nine years later, families live with dirt floors in a in a tent with a door that doesn't lock and, you know, floors that are muddy when it rains. So we're excited about that. And the design community really rallied behind it. I felt that we had an opportunity to show that safe and uplifting housing isn't just for lucky people. So we're going to keep pursuing that. Mm-hmm. And I feel great about it. And you'll see it in the magazine. You'll see it on our social platforms. You'll see it on the website. All right. Well, one last question. Yeah. If you could go back and talk to 20-something-year-old Amy, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give her? Chill out. (laughs) (laughs) I was very ambitious and always working super hard. But, you know, you are what you are. And I I mean, at this point in my life, I I see people don't really change. Um, And I was always a hard worker. And, and goal oriented. And, you know, I think I'm lucky. I'm, I'm fortunate to say I achieved a lot of what I wanted to achieve. I can remember at Vogue at one point thinking, oh, I'm so naturally bossy. Maybe I could be an editor in chief. You know, I was in my <laughs> 20s. It just sort of went through my head. And then I was like, yes, I think maybe I could do that. I, I'm always telling people what to do. Um, maybe that came from being the big sister in the family of three, three kids too. But um, I, I feel I was supported in my journey. And, you know, going back to Team Vogue, I tried to bring that feeling of support that I had as a young person from my family and from my career here at Condé to other people. And I, I feel that my advice to myself would have been to chill out, but I wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Amy, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Our booker is Jessica Andrews, and Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. A special thanks to Robert Ald for recording help in New York. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you are a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter at APalmerDC. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 